If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Tuesday, March the 20th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in the Hoover studio, deep in the heart of Stanford campus, David Davenport. He is a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, specializing in international law and treaties, constitutional federalism, and American politics and law. From 1985 to 2000, Dave Davenport was president of Pepperdine University, thus begging the question, why, sir, did you leave Malibu? (laughs) Well, even my wife asks that question. You can follow David Davenport on FobForbes.com, where he writes a regular column. You can also hear him on doing radio commentaries on the Salem Radio Network and townhall.com. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Bill, always. In February, February the 23rd, you wrote a column for the San Francisco Chronicle with this rather startling, some might say alarming headline, Millennials Could Change Our Political Landscape If They Vote. And I'm going to read you a passage from this. I want you to comment on it, Dave. Quote, in the election of 2018, and certainly by 2020, millennials will supplant baby boomers, baby boomers as the dominant voting group, perhaps kicking off their own 40-year run of political dominance. While a major shift in American politics could result, I offer a word of caution, not so fast. Why, sir? Well, the numbers uh, make the first point, which is we will literally have more millennials of voting age. About 76 million millennials yep, right now in the yep. U.S. And so by 2019, so roughly showing up in, in either the 2018 midterms or the 2020 presidential election, they will outnumber millennial uh, potential voters. Mm-hmm. But the records suggest that they don't show up in the same kind of numbers. And so in 2016, for example, only about half of young people voted, whereas about two-thirds of older cohorts voted. So while they could overtake millennials, uh, Mm -hmm. millennials could overtake uh, boomers, we just don't know that that's going to happen. They have the numbers, but we just don't know if they're going to show up and be politically active and vote. So that's that's a big question, I think, with that generation. Okay, so while we toss these phrases around, millennial boomers and so forth, let's let's give clarity to what we're talking about here. A millennial is somebody born in roughly the... Well, some go as far back as 1980. Others quibble and say 82, 83. Mm -hmm. And then uh, roughly people say born as late as 2000. Again, some will push back and say, no, 97, 98. So it's roughly a 15 to 20 year span, 1980 to 2000. They're preceded by the boomers. Right. Okay, the boomers are 1946 to the early 60s, right? Right. You're a boomer. I am a boomer. I'm a boomer, and the boomers are dominating American politics. Bill Clinton is a boomer. Hillary Clinton's a boomer. George W. Bush, a boomer. Barack Obama at the tail end of the boom. Donald Trump, born in 1946, a boomer. So they are are the, the party in power right now. They are, and I think that's another interesting dimension of this kind of millennial boomer contrast, if you will. Mm-hmm. At the same time, millennial voters are uh, set to take over if they will show up and vote. Right. Um, we have really a generation of boomer politicians that are set to leave the stage. I mean, Jerry Brown, our governor here for uh, several terms at different times, uh, has finally announced he's ready to go to the family ranch. Right. Um, people don't generally think the Hillary Clintons and the Joe Bidens and so forth are going to be viable presidential candidates in in 2020. Uh, So there's a chance here for a a generational change in political leadership. And uh, 
I, I don't know that it's going to jump all the way from the boomers to the millennials in one step. There may be some interim uh, right. figures here. Uh, but again, that's another interesting dimension of this whole millennial boomer comparison in politics. Right. So millennials will call Generation Y. And then after the Generation Y comes Generation Z, Dave. And these are the young folks who we see active after the Parkland shooting, right? Yeah. And we don't uh, we really don't have a lot of polling numbers yet about mm -hmm. them. Some call them the post-millennial generation. Some, as you say, Bill, call them Generation Z. Those are people who are basically today below age 18. Uh -huh. And we don't have a lot of polling. So most of the evidence about their politics is anecdotal. Uh, and, and as you say, they're the ones that are largely out uh, protesting the guns uh, and, and marching and taking 17 minutes out, out of class uh, in, in high schools. What happens after Gen Z, David? We've run out of letters in the alphabet. We get, it's just like storms and Noah. Are we going to go around on the on the alphabet? Well, or? You, you and I will be gone. We won't have to worry about that, Bill. Okay, a couple of things I uh, do know about uh, millennials based on polling by Pew. Uh, half of millennials are politically unaffiliated. They don't line up with either Democrats or Republicans. Only one in five millennials believes others can be trusted. So there's a sort of a baked-in cynicism with this age group. And millennials, more so than Gen X, are on Facebook. And they're on uh, texting. They text an average about 50 times a day. So while they may be cynical, they don't line up with a politician. They're still active on the social media front. Why do millennials, Dave, drift to the likes of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden, who will be 78 in 2000? It's, <laughs> this is something I don't quite understand, why the youngest portion of the voting sector seems to gravitate, especially in the case of Bernie Sanders, somebody who is 50 years older than many of them. Well, I, I mean, that is one of the great ironies, is that, uh, as you say, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are two favorites of, of millennial voters. Um, if you just look at it uh, objectively, they don't really have a lot of millennial choices. I mean, it's not like there are a lot of people in, in the 20s and 30s who are running at the national level. Right. So, you know, compared to Hillary Clinton, they like kind of the wackier ideas, the, the further out there, the further left ideas of a, of a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth uh, Warren. Um, and really, the, the, there are no Republican favorites, particularly among the millennial generation. So they just aren't faced with a lot of, of, of other choices at this point. But, but I agree with you. It is kind of an irony that their two favorites are, are in their 70s. So as we look at 2018 and 2020, Dave, and the question of millennial participation, uh, it begs the question of what they think about Donald Trump. But it also begs the question, Dave, of what will motivate them to vote. And there's one argument that they'll be motivated largely by style and personality, that they will not relate to Trump, and so they'll want to vote against Trump. But the other school of thought, it's going to take a policy issue to spark them to the polls. And there are many debates over what that policy issue is. Some would say it's gun control. Some will say it's illegal immigration. Some will say maybe it's another social issue, such as education or taxation or so forth. But what's your sense? Well, uh, first of all, one irony that I think most of the media hasn't picked up on is that millennials are not substantially different from older voters on the issue of guns. Really? They're, they're showing up more, but uh, the Pew polls and others point out if there's only about a percent difference in how millennials feel about guns than how older generations do. Right. So, uh, and, and of course, although the politicians are talking about trying to make schools safer and should teachers be armed and that sort of thing, it really hasn't caused a wave of gun control-specific legislation. Mm -hmm. So I, I would be surprised if that really became, I mean, it's, it's taking young people into the streets at the moment, but I, I would be surprised if that sustained itself uh, into political change in 2018. 
I, I think the deeper millennial issue that is more likely to start a little bit of a fire is they're much more concerned about security, uh, personal security and stability. I, by that, I don't mean safety, but I'm talking about economics, security, and safety. And therefore, although my generation, the baby boomers, they, they're concerned about things like Social Security and Medicare, mm -hmm. Uh, the, the millennials are concerned about, you know, will I be able to keep a job and right. will I be able to buy a house and will I be able to educate my kids? So I think, again, politicians like Bernie Sanders who say, for example, we ought to have free college. Right. Uh, those are going to appeal to millennials, those kind of economic security issues, but for people in their 20s and 30s, not people in their 60s and 70s. So free college, free health care. Precisely. Is this the winning candidate in the future of America, Dave, the person who offers free stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think millennials may, may find that, you know, appealing. And uh, Congress hasn't shown any great muscle in terms of stopping spending either. So presidents, you know, like to spend and make people happy, and Congress doesn't like to stop spending. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that the future of America, at least for a good long while, is more spending, and millennials would like to see that spent on them, not more money spent on their parents. Dave, what's your sense that if Donald Trump gets a knock on the head and he wakes up one morning and decides we have to do something about entitlements? And he talks to Speaker Ryan about this, who's obviously thought long and hard about the topic, and the president decides that it's time for a public conversation about what we're doing in America in terms of Social Security and Medicare and how we're essentially bankrupting the country. What is your sense, Dave, as to how millennials would react to this conversation? Oh, I think they would be very interested in that. Uh, I think they are fearful that they're going to end up paying our entitlements and there will be nothing left for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think they would be very open to such a conversation. The problem is that anytime we've even gotten close to having such a conversation in the past, it grandfathers, if you will, right. uh, those in the older age groups. And so it probably really only impacts younger people, people starting in their 50s and below. Right. So... Um, I, have a, I have a late psychologist friend who used to say in response to things like this, don't get rational on me. So their, their concern is not entirely rational because the range of solutions is probably not going to help them. And it's probably going to continue to grandfather the older generation. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I think they're not being entirely rational about that. But I think they would warm to such a conversation. Right. So you mentioned young people spilling out to protest about gun policy. This is what was in the news last week, the protest around the country on school campuses. This is Generation Z at work. This is the post-millennial generation. It's called the I generation, the founders, the plurals, the homeland generation. We have a lot of names for it, but these are youngins. These are people coming in the political pipeline. About Gen Z, they are less focused but better multitaskers than older generations of Americans. They are supposedly, in theory, more entrepreneurial. They're interested in entering the workforce, workforce earlier rather than later. And they're big, Dave, on individuality. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you'll remember, Bill, last time I was on the program with you, we talked about Gordon Wade's and my new book, right. Rugged Individualism. Right. And in the last chapter of that book, although we, we argue in the book uh, essentially that rugged individualism is constantly on the ropes in America, but we saw some hope in the younger generation because, as you point out, in their business lives, they seem to be more entrepreneurial, less interested in you know, moving to New York and doing uh, banking for a 50-year career. In their social lives, they spend more time on their own, although they're networked with other people. They are often alone and on their own. Um, and they, they're more interested in doing their own thing than what everybody else expects them to do. 
So there are some hopeful signs, I think, in terms of individuality or individualism among young people. A concern I have, however, is they have not been translating that into their politics and right. how they vote. Right. So they keep saying what they really want is people who will spend more government money on mm -hmm. them, uh, who will raise taxes on the wealthy, uh, and and who's and even you know some of the polls show they have although although the polls go on to say they don't really know what they mean by this they even are warm toward socialism in ways that prior generations were not, so th they aren't voting for people who are going to give them more individualism, but in their own business and social lives, they seem to be wanting to live that out. Okay, if this were the old Groucho Marx, you bet your life show, the duck would have dropped down <laughs> at this point because you just said the magic word vote. Dave, where were you in 1970 when Congress was debating the 26th Amendment? Well, I was in college and, and probably participating in the first ever Viet, uh, uh, draft lottery. Right. Um, and, and that was the big issue of the day. And that, that, in part, I think, fueled the decision to allow 18-year-olds to vote. The, right. the argument was if we're going to be sending people abroad and giving up their lives in, in wars in Asia, um, shouldn't they at least be able to vote for their leaders? And, and, and so I think that largely fueled the change to allow 18-year-olds to vote. Right. So the 26th Amendment, for those not familiar, was uh, passed by Congress in March of 1971. It is a fast-track amendment. It, it is uh, ratified by the states in 100 days. Nixon signs it in, in the law in July of 1971. What the 26th Amendment says is it gives Congress the right to regulate the minimum age in federal elections, but it also has a little loophole in it, Dave, and it does not set the minimum age for state and local level voting. Correct. Thus, states have the opportunity to lower the voting age if they so choose. That's exactly right. I mean, if if there were to be a further change in the voting age, it likely would not be federal. Right. Uh, and in fact, to make it federal, you'd have to have a constitutional amendment, which right. requires you know two thirds of each House of Congress and three fourths of the state legislatures somewhere between, you know, difficult and impossible. Right. But states are free and municipalities are free to lower their voting age if you wish. So right. if there were to be some further change down, say, to 16-year-old voting, it would have to happen at the state and municipal level. And there are some examples of that already. Not many, but some. There are. 15 states, Dave, have allowed 17-year-olds to vote in primaries, but there's an asterisk with this. Right. And that's if you're 17 in the primary, turning 18 by the time of the general election. Right. California last year, Dave, proposed a state constitutional amendment. It stalled the legislature. They couldn't get a two-thirds vote. It would have fully allowed 17-year-olds to participate. No asterisks, no need to turn 18 right. by the election, but it died in the legislature. Around the world, you have seen countries lower voting ages. Argentina, Austria, Brazil, Cuba, Ecuador, Nicaragua allow voting now at age 16. Scotland allowed 16-year-olds to vote during its uh, 2014 independence referendum. Uh, some German states, Brandenburg and Bremen, do it. A couple of cities in America, uh, Tacoma Park, Maryland. If you live in Washington, D.C., I think that's nuclear-free Tacoma Park, <laughs> if they call themselves. Heightsville, Maryland, allow 16- and 72-year-olds to vote in local elections. This begs an interesting question, Post -Park um, Parkland, David. I want your thoughts on this. We're now in a period of conversation in this country over what young people can and cannot do. And this stems from Parkland and the idea of what age a individual should be allowed to buy a gun in the country. The idea that right now an 18-year-old can buy a gun, maybe we should push it up to 21. Well, there's enormous pushback when you do that. It just opens this Pandora's box of what uh, boys and girls should be doing between the age of 16 and 21. Give me an idea of your sense of what 16 to 20-year-olds children should not be allowed to do. And this this is voting, Dave. This is driving. This is this is working full-time. It's guns. Just give me your thoughts. 
Well, I think we are sort of on the horns of a dilemma here because on one hand, um, as we study the human brain and its development and right. we learn more and more about the maturation process of the brain, um, we understand that that's taking place probably into the 20s. Uh, and so people of yeah. age 16 are really not right. even there's, near fully mature. There, there, there's a phrase for us. It's called hot cognition, cognition and cold cognition. Right. Cold cognition is your ability just to rationalize logic put in front of you and make a choice. So in theory, cold cognition is Dave Davenport's looking at two candidates, and he can decide based on the candidates what they offer, which one makes sense. But there's hot cognition as well. And that is your ability to think under fire or under stress. And I think studies show that you cannot really do that until you're past 21, right. 22 or so when that right. kicks in. So, okay, so in theory, you're 16 years old, and you should have the mental capacity to make an educated choice. Uh, yes, uh, but as I said, you know, from in most areas, we're actually increasing the age of, right. of so, you know, my kids couldn't drive at 16 as I did, uh, unfettered. They, they had to have a certain period of time where they couldn't take young people with them in the car as it, that would be a distraction. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're kind, of, like that, yeah. we're kind of putting new limitations and moving the, the thresholds up in terms of driving. As you say, in, in guns, I mean, Florida's recent uh, legislation increases the age for purchasing a, a gun. Right. Um, for drinking, in general, the age is going up. It's 21. not going down. So I, I think as we understand the maturation process, the responsibility process, um, generally we're moving things up. So what would be the case to move voting down? Um, well, first of all, I don't think there's any compelling reason, like a war in Vietnam where 16-year-olds are dying and ought to have a say. Most 16-year-olds are not working full-time and therefore aren't taxpayers in, in, a, in, in any kind of full-time sense. Um, really, the only argument I hear people making is, well, we'd like more civic engagement. Let's get the kids involved. Right. It'll whet their appetite to be right. consistent voters. And, and, but I think in, in a topic you and I may want to discuss more fully here, uh, one of the biggest crises, I think, in the country, in fact, one of the next books that I'm working on, I've tentatively titled The Civic Education Crisis. Right. One of our big crises in this country is that young people don't know about our government. That's a, that's and, right. and so really, are, are, aren't we putting the cart before the horse? when we try, talk about civic engagement, right. but we don't talk about civic education first. So my own view would be, I'd like to see a few more years of civic education before we exactly. move toward civic engagement. So you wrote a piece about this for Forbes.com last November, and you pointed to a study by Xavier University, which said that one-third of Americans cannot pass civics portions of the American citizenship test, whereas immigrants pass it at a 97.5% rate. You also pointed to a YouGov poll which found that those under 30 preferred socialism over capitalism, 43% to 30%. You also pointed out a Reason Root poll of 18 to 24-year-olds. It shows that 58% support socialism. The same poll asked a follow-up question whether governments or markets should manage the economy. Young people said markets by a two-to-one mar uh, margin, which is an interesting contradiction of you want a market-driven economy under a socialist regime. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't decide which was scarier. The first question, which is young people are sympathetic towards socialism, or the second question, they don't know what socialism is. So one-third of Americans cannot pass a civics portion of an American citizenship test. What sort of questions are these? How many years a senator serves? How many terms a president can serve? Things like that? Well, yeah. Yes. And I mean, they don't, I mean, you've, you've, there are all kinds of polls out there about right. this. 77% uh, of young people couldn't name a single senator from their home state. A bunch of them think Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court. I mean, there's all <laughs> kinds of examples of this. 
Um, probably the most serious one is, you know, we give the NAEP tests in all kinds of fields. Right. Historically, we give them in fourth grade, eighth grade, and 12th grade. Um, if it's true, what, what educators say, you know, people learn what's tested. Well, we've even quit testing civics and history in fourth and 12th grade. We only test it now in the eighth grade, mm -hmm. although other subjects continue to be tested all three times. Mm -hmm. So now we're down to 18% of eighth graders who are proficient and above in history and 23% in government. And only one or 2% excel in those areas. So A, the fact that we don't even test those anymore in fourth and 12th grade gives some kind of message. B, the fact that we have pitiful scores in the mm -hmm. one age in which they are tested eighth grade. To me, those are the most serious figures. Right. And, and it suggests to me that we truly do have a civic education crisis. It's, I mean, just, just take guns, for example. I mean, they don't really know what could be done or should be done about gun control. And they don't know who would do it. And they don't know how we would go about it. They just want to do something, quote unquote. Right. And, and so I think in, before we can really accelerate and increase civic engagement, quote, doing something, we first need to understand, well, what, what is it that can be done and by whom and what would it take? Right. So I think the protests are a good example of the hot cognition that we talked about. You're upset by the school shooting. You want change. You're mad at politicians. So you go out and you protest about one particular policy issue. But you haven't sat down and looked at the multifaceted problem that is guns in America, both in terms of availability right. of guns, restrictions on guns, uh, how, how law enforcement react to do and so forth. Many, many issues on that on the topic. Let me ask you this, Dave. You are suggesting that to, in order to allow a 16-year-old to vote, the 16-year-old has to have a better understanding of how democracy works in America. How then would you blow up the school system? How would you rearrange <laughs> civics then to allow this to happen so that a 16-year-old that a is peaking, if you will, like a good wine there? They're hitting their peak year come 16. Well, uh, if I could go even further back, I mean, one of the problems uh, that I plan to write about in this book is that their teachers also don't have a good understanding of American history and government. So when, when a teacher graduates from a school of education, their degree shows that they know something about pedagogy, the art of teaching, right. but they don't necessarily know about their subject matter. And so you could be assigned to teach American history or government, but really not have much understanding about that. So, and in fact, a recent uh, survey of, of teachers in, in all 50 states, in 33 states, they said one of their greatest needs was more professional development, meaning we need more education for teachers to understand the history and the government that needs to be taught. Right. So as a starting point, I think, you know, very few colleges require courses in government or history, unfortunately, these days. And, and it seems to me that if a teacher is going to teach those subjects, there needs to be some requirement and, and a very robust opportunity for them to really understand that subject. So I would actually start there. Um, then in terms of the schools, I think you have to require courses in, in government and in history. And I think you need to be, if you're going to test, I mean, one of the problems is we've put all of our emphasis in recent years on STEM, science, technology, uh, and, and, and mathematics. Um, I think we're going to have to have a similar emphasis on history and civics. And, and so if we're going to test math and science, then I think we're going to have to test history and civics. Um, so those are some things, I mean, in particular, I'm interested in, uh, in a movement that, that teaches American history using primary documents. Um, I think that that's a much more interesting way for students to learn. They're less biased, frankly, and boring than textbooks. 
So that's, that's a particular way I would like to see us go about teaching history and civics. Two questions. Your 16-year-old son or daughter has to take driver's ed before getting behind the wheel. They have to pass a driver's test to get their license. Should there be a test for first-time voters? Well, I mean, I, I sort of threw that out in the Forbes piece on whether 16-year-olds should be given the right to vote. I said, right. no, I don't think they should. But if you did, how about giving them a test first and let them parallel park? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that would be one way to go about this if we really want to have, you know, people voting at age 16. Mm -hmm. Now, let's be honest, Bill. There's also a political issue in the 16-year-old vote. Democrats are very much aware that young people are more liberal and more likely to think favorably of the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. This was the concern back in 1971 when Nixon signed this. Some people thought, holy smokes, this is opening the door to the likes of a George McGovern. But it didn't work out in 72, did it? Well, no. Uh, they went too far left. Right. And um, as I said, you know, at the top of the show, um, are, uh, you know, are, are these millennials really going to turn out and vote and make a difference? I think they're likely to change the debate because they're willing to talk and go outside of class and march around so I th and, and get in newspapers and in the media. So I think, I think millennials are going to change some of the political debate. Whether they actually change the outcomes of elections, I'm more dubious, at least in the short term. Second question, should there be some sort of use it or lose it provision to voting in this country? In other words, if you do not vote in the present election, the present presidential election, you don't get the vote in the next one. Yeah, I, I guess I would hate to see that. It seems to me that, that if, if our problem is that people aren't showing up to vote, the punishment would be you, you can't show up to vote. And in theory, you should, if you do not like other candidate, you shouldn't be compelled to vote for a candidate right. you don't like. So part, right. of, part of a free society is turning your back on Well, and frankly, I mean, Bill, just think about voting right here in our home state. I mean, I, I think plenty of people uh, didn't think that the choice between Clinton and Trump was a fabulous choice last time. If you thought about voting for U.S. Senator in California, our top two primary system here now in the state mm -hmm. means that you may not have a Republican or a Democrat in a particular race. Right. So we had two liberal Democrats running for the Senate. Well, if you happen to be a Republican, that wasn't a real exciting choice. Mm -hmm. So th there are some reasons sometimes not to show up and right. not to vote. But Dave, the California ballot does allow you to write in names. And so that's what it did. I wrote in a name for president. You know who I wrote in? Well, I, George I, Schultz. Oh, well, <laughs> I could join you in that, although he's, I think he's 95 now. Well, he's sharp as a tack. And my theory is he will turn, he'll turn 100 in December of 2020, and this is a good way to keep him occupied for a few years <laughs> <laughs> until then. Well, and that's a whole other uh, conversation, I think, why the brightest and the best, including somebody like George Schultz, exactly. doesn't my, run for president. My contention was neither candidate was sufficiently Schultzian in yep. my view of the world, so yep. that's why I did that. I can't argue with you. Right. Uh, the final question about this set, then, is what to do about the 26th Amendment. Is I can, I can look to say half of young people are not voting. Why don't we chuck the 26th Amendment? Why don't we overturn it? And we have overturned constitutional amendments. We, we overturned the Volstead Act, for example, made the country wet again. So should we consider 18-year-old voting a failure? Well, I, 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 it seems to me that we can allow the states uh, to uh, take the actions that they want to take. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think actually most people don't understand that even a presidential election is not a single election. It's actually 51 separate elections right. run by 50 states and the District of Columbia. And there are more, I mean, we had a little bit of a lesson on that in the Florida Chad <laughs> recount. Uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton is still undergoing this, uh, this problem in India. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so w we need to understand in this country we really have 51 separate elections, right. and within certain limits uh, stated by the Constitution, states have a fair bit of freedom as to right. how they carry those elections out. So my instinct would be allow some experimentation, you know, allow yep. states. I mean, we some states, as you pointed out, or more accurately municipalities are allowing 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds to vote. Um, let's allow some experimentation and see what works and what doesn't work. 18-year-olds, the fact that they don't turn out heavily, I think, doesn't mean that, uh, that they are not interested in the political process and that as they become taxpayers, bearing responsibilities, they, they might not vote. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those who do vote are probably the more serious, uh, the people who are more interested. So uh, uh, I guess I don't see that as, as our greatest problem in trying to solve uh, the, the problem of civic malaise. So it's possible that a state could decide to raise its voting age to 21. Well, no. The 26th no. Amendment would keep a state from okay. going so, that so high. Cannot go up. They can go lower, okay. but they can't go higher. So, so, no, you're right about that. The federal uh, the federal constitutional amendment would prevent going back to 21. So you would have to nuke the 26th Amendment to allow states to raise to it increase to 21. To increase the age. Yes, that's and right. And so here we get into the fight, whereas if Congress wanted to lower the voting age to 16, I imagine there are, you know, yeah. Dozens of conservatives in Congress will say over my dead body. And I think if you want to raise it to 21, there are probably dozens of liberals who will say over my dead body as well. So it's hard to see that amendment going away. No, it is. And, and I mean, this is one of people's frustrations with our democracy is that in a hyper-partisan, heavily divided uh, government, um, it's really hard to even contemplate a constitutional amendment. We've done a lot of them in our history, but we, we aren't living in a time right now when you can get two-thirds of Congress and three-fourths of the states to agree on hardly anything. And and so I think changing a constitutional amendment in this environment would be pretty tough, maybe there are impossible. There 27 con amendments right now, I believe. Yeah, and there's, yeah. I mean... The last one has to do with pay, I believe, for Congress, <laughs> and they've been sitting around since the 1790s. So, yeah, this is not a Congress designed to do big, ambitious things like that. No, and, and uh, you know, the states have their own interest in these things. I mean, even if you got it through Congress, you have to get three-fourths of the state legislatures to agree. So that's why some people are calling for a constitutional convention. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that that's a little bit of a reckless uh, adventure and, and not one I would be too excited about. Okay, another way to possibly encourage young people to vote is to make Election Day a national holiday. You hear this coming out every four years. You give everybody the day off and give schools the day off, people will go out and vote. Well, again, states are free to do that if they want. Right. I mean, st if, if states want to have drive-through voting, if they want to have uh, different kinds of voter registration standards, right. if they want to have a holiday for voting, right. again, all that's possible state by state. So why not experiment with that? See if it makes a difference. Right. But you have governed over a university of Malibu, Dave. If it's a warm, sunny day in November on Election Day, <laughs> the odds of people going inside a school to vote versus heading to the beach. Well, I, I read one headline that said that these gun protests in Texas were now going to be at risk because it was spring break. So, I mean, certain realities do set in, and certain priorities are higher than politics, especially at 16, I would guess. That's good. So what is your sense, Dave, as to what turns the corner on young voters' apathy? Is it, again, going to take... Uh, I was going to say the word trigger, but that's a bad word to use in the case of Parkland. But is it going to take some very big national event to galvanize that vote? Uh, or is it just this generation is just going to have to suddenly wake up on its own and decide to vote? Or is it going to take some generational appeal candidate? We had one in Barack Obama, but somebody like that coming along to get youngins to come out to vote. How does, how does the system get changed? Well, I mean, 
I, I, as I've said before, I do think the long-term solution to this is civic education. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but it is a long-term solution. It's not going to change anything by 2020. Right. But I think if we began teaching young people how important our democracy is and how the republic operates and so forth, to me, that is the long-term solution. Short term, there are two or three possibilities. The most likely is they're just going to have to mature and get older. And that does happen on the natural. And they get jobs and they pay taxes and they're more interested in government. Uh, so, so that's plan A. Actually, plan A for me is civic education. Plan B is they're going to get older and get more interested. Right. As you say, plan C might be an issue like Vietnam was to my generation uh, that, that really brought people out in, in a higher proportion percentage. Uh, and Plan D is a, is a candidate, is some of these uh, baby boomer candidates leave the stage, probably not at the presidential level, but maybe at the local levels or state levels, there'll be some candidates that will stir some real interest. Right. So all, all of those things could work and could work uh, together, but they're not likely, I think, to happen soon. Right. Uh, two thoughts here in terms of schools. I attended Washington Lee University, Southwest Virginia, and every four years Washington Lee holds what it calls the mock convention. It takes the party out of party, uh, the party out of power, Dave. So it'd be the Democrats in 2020, and it does a mock convention of the Democratic uh, nomination. And students gather, and the students form delegations, and they decide who the nominee and the vice presidential nominee. It is a immersion in civics for WNL that week, where you learn about how a convention works, and you learn about the candidates, and you take up candidates' positions, and you try to guess the process. So it's a way to get people involved. The second thought is, especially back in high school, is maybe schools need to think about having debates, where one student takes the side of one candidate, one student takes the side of the other, and they have a public discourse on what the two candidates stand for. Just some way to try to alert the kids to what the candidates are actually talking yeah. about. Well, you know, we, we uh, a bit earlier we said that, that we've become much more creative in STEM, science, technology, and mm -hmm. so forth. We, we bring people in, we do experiments uh, right. to demonstrate how things uh, work in, in the field of science. Uh, we bring people from the computer world in to show how relevant mathematics is to, yeah. to computers and so forth. We haven't had a similar wave of creativity about history and about civics. And uh, as you suggest, there are ways of doing that. I mentioned earlier primary documents. When you get students around uh, three speeches, even by Herbert Hoover and three speeches by FDR, and you create the debate of right. the Great Depression and the New Deal, I mean, there's some excitement and interest in that. And they quickly see the relevance. I mean, you get into questions that are absolutely on the table today, and they see the relevance of that to today. Um, and, and so really, in a sense, even without a lot of extra effort, like debates or mock conventions, mm -hmm. uh, you just recreate the debates of the day, of, of, some, of that time, and in, have students enter into that world, take off their 21st century glasses and go back and live in that world, and then go back to come back, go back in history to come back today and ask some of those same questions today. So there are exciting ways of doing that, and, and I think that's part and parcel of, of a revival of civic education yep. that I think the country needs. I think the parties also have to rethink their approach to young voters. Democrats, for example, rely very heavily on social media, MTV, Rock the Vote, um, celebrity endorsements, you know, you know, Beyonce supports this candidacy, therefore young people will vote for this person because Beyonce or Leonardo DiCaprio or LeBron James supports the person. Maybe the parties, Dave, have to think about having politicians themselves try to make the, the personal connection rather than star power doing the job for them. Yeah, I think, I, I think you're right about that. I think uh, uh, our, the, the baby boomer generation sort of despairs of how to reach millennials yeah. directly. Mm -hmm. 
And so they use these indirect methods because they don't really feel like they understand how to do, the, do it themselves. And, and I think some new people are going to make some new models uh, for how to go about that. So I think it's going to take a political figure who either is himself or herself a millennial or who understands millennials and, and who can demonstrate how that can be done. Mm-hmm. You had a uh, commentary on National Review this morning talking about millennials. What was what was on your mind? Well, d- uh, the, just the question of, of uh, how much of a change can millennials make? And, and they could make a really big change because their views are quite different. You know, the old commercial, this is not your father's Buick or Oldsmobile, whatever the car was. Well, um, millennial voters are not your father's voters. You know, their views are, are substantially different on most issues. And so they could really move the policy needle in the coming years. Um, but again, the question is, will they dig into the trenches and really become active and vote? And so far, the evidence is, is not there that they're going to make a difference, maybe for another five or 10 years. All right. So that was going to be my final question. Do you see them moving the needle in 2018 or 2020? No, I do. As I said earlier, I, th- I do see them potentially affecting the conversation. I think right. the conversation in 2018, 2020 will have to include guns. Right. We'll have to. I mean, Bernie has put free tuition on the table. Candidates are going to have to respond to that. Uh, so I think there will be some millennial issues on the table in 2018 and 2020 mm-hmm. that will change the conversation. But I, I don't see the evidence that even though the scale tips in favor of millennial voters over boomer voters in those years, I don't see them coming out to vote in a high enough percentage to actually have a dramatic change in outcomes. Yeah, the answer might be 2024, Dave, because that'll be the first post-Trump election where Trump is not on the ballot, where therefore it does not become a referendum on Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not sucking up all the oxygen in the room. So maybe that's the time when we see this shift in this conversation. Take place. Well, I think that that could very well be. It, it would be surprising if the Republicans led the way in reaching millennial right. voters because consistently in the polls, Though, though they don't particularly like the Democrats either, millennials especially don't like the Republicans. Right. So it would be ironic if Republicans kind of led the way in reaching them. But as you say, in, in some ways, the Democrat approach has been a more pandering kind of approach. And, and I'm not sure millennials are going to buy that long term. So it'd be, it'll, be, it'll be refreshing and interesting to see what new approaches could be taken by 2024. And millennials will be getting old by 2024. <laughs> old enough to uh, pay taxes and feel responsible to vote. Very good. Dave Davenport, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of David Davenport and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Are you on Twitter, Dave? Uh, I had a very short but illustrious career on Twitter, but <laughs> resign. <laughs> Anything else you want to plug while I've got you here? No. Uh, uh, the, our book, Rugged Individualism, that Gordon and I, Lloyd and I authored earlier this year, I think has done well and raises some interesting questions. He and I are working on a, another book now on uh, why, how and why have poli- has policy become war and emergency and not deliberation. That'll come out next year. And then my next book is already teeing up about the civic education crisis. 
Very good. We can find your commentaries on Forbes.com and Town Hall, and your radio commentaries we can find at Salem, right? Correct. Salem Radio and Townhall.com. Very good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.